Hello, and welcome to the Race, Wealth, and Health podcast, a podcast that serves to educate and empower while we explore the intersections of social justice, economic empowerment, and holistic well-being with the communities of color. I am your host, Dr. Joycelyn Morris, and I invite you to join me as we dive deep into the crucial topics that shape our lives, challenge the status quo, and strive for a more equitable future for all. This week, we're back with Erica Taylor for part two of the conversation around the racial wealth gap. Let's tune in. Yeah. And so I think that leads me into my next question. Now that we've talked about how race and racial capitalism created the wealth divide, I want to just touch on last year, you wrote an article titled The Deep Roots of the Racial Wealth Gap and How We Can Undo It. I'll definitely be sure to link the article in, in the show notes, but if you could just give an overview, when we talk about the racial wealth gap, what do we need, mean? And then what did you uncover in this article in terms of, of the deep roots of the racial wealth gap? Absolutely. When we talk about the gap, just to, um, to go into the sort of the actual numbers, let's look back at immediately after slavery in 1865, after emancipation. Not surprisingly, black people only owned about half percent of the national, you know, one half percent of the national wealth. So fast forward to 2019, and that number had grown to a dramatic 2%, which is absurd and obscene, but again, just sort of shows you know, what exclusion and predatory inclusion can do. And so by 2019, white folks had the collective median wealth was $188,200. So that's $188,200 for a median wealth of white folks. The median wealth of black families, $24,100. $24,100. And if you look at the growth over the years between 83 and, and, and uh, 2016, adjusting for inflation, median wealth for white families increased by 33%. And for black families, wealth decreased by more than half. And this is all data that comes, we're still sort of assessing out data from the pandemic because it's going to take a while to have the full you know, understanding of what's causal, you know, what's the cause. You know, what it, so that's the, the gap in numbers. And again, the implications of those gaps are great. As I mentioned earlier, the deep the roots really go back to, to colonization. And then once we have the establishment of this country, continue to have models where you have sort of freebies for folks who aren't Black. Think about the homesteading program, which some folks might know about, but it's a program basically gave people rights to land that had been stolen from Native Americans. But you go on claiming if, if you're able to stay on the land for five years, it becomes your land for pennies on the dollar. So folks come over and just, basically it's given free land. And then if they can ma- maintain it for five years, it is their land. You move forward. It's only a tiny fraction of, of black folks were able to participate in that. So then you have this white wealth being created. Because again, this is land, this is property. It continues to increase in value. And you can use that, especially after the New Deal. And then you can use that to leverage on your, alone in your home, what have you, to like send your kids to school. You know, black kids and other kids of color are far more likely to take out debt. And black folks are also coincidentally more likely to go to graduate school. Black undergrad students are more likely than white people to go to graduate school, but they're also more likely to carry that debt. And even when you look ahead at just little things like the tax system. Yeah. Well, so Dorothy Brown uh, is a uh, professor. She was at Emory. Now she's here in D.C. and I think at Georgetown. But she wrote a book called The Whiteness of Wealth. And she examined how all these seemingly you know, non-race you know, sort of neutral policies, in fact, are not. So if you're a homeowner, you can claim interest up to like, I forget the exact demos, but huge amounts, I think maybe $300,000 to $400,000 of interest that you can claim a year. And there, as we've established, far more white homeowners in the U.S. than there are black homeowners, largely because of this new deal. And you have to hold in the home in advance. But if you have student loan debt, 
you can only uh, claim the first two or three thousand dollars, and then you can't do that after your income uh, it hits eighty-five thousand dollars a year. Mm-hmm. So if you make more than eighty-five thousand dollars a year, you can no longer de- deduct your student loan debt. And again, you're looking at all the black folks going to you know getting graduate degrees, and again, so where, where they might have an opportunity to make more than eighty-five thousand dollars a year, but they can't write off this interest in a way that homeowners, predominantly white, can write off these much larger percentages of mortgage deductions. And there is no high, uh, income limit, so you can be a multi multi millionaire, and you still get to deduct all this interest, right? So we keep creating systems and structures, often, typically, predominantly by design, but not always by design, but the impact is the same. So it doesn't really matter. The intention to to discriminate and be inequitable is irrelevant when the impact is one of inequity and injustice, and that's sort of where we are. And we're not going to be able to move beyond that. For for black folks, to, you, you see different numbers when you look at what it would take for black folks to, to reach the median white wealth. And the numbers vary, but, but, but there is not a single number. No projection is under 100 years. And that's, you know, again, absurd, especially when you factor in that it was the theft of this labor and the theft of this land from, from indigenous folks that enabled this wealth to exist in the first place. Yep. That makes so much sense. And so it's really interesting when we think about it and how we should be thinking about when it comes to the deep roots, right? Because it's it's become such a, a recent topic, but a lot of times we're not really talking about, to your point earlier, about root cause, right? Versus just yeah. sort of the symptoms and the things that we see today. What what do you think people should be thinking about when, when it comes to dismantling uh, the wealth gap? I'll think you... Unra- or unraveling the wealth gap is what I was going to say. Yes, I think the, the, the core thing is go, going to the root causes, right? Again, to like slam financial literacy, nothing wrong with it, but that doesn't address the systemic issues. And I think at the core, this is, this is a very, very popular solution in the black community, much less so in uh, the white community, varying uh, levels in other uh, communities of color, but reparations. I mean, reparations really is, and they could take you know, sort of many forms in my own opinion. I think you know, they, it, there should be a financial aspect because these are financial ramifications that have existed. So that's that's one um, one means, but also one that, that is a big lift. So I think that we're not going to see reparations on a national level anytime in the near future. However, we've seen some state-based options popping up here and there. California is near the end of this process of creating the reparations plan. Um, and you might know California was not a slave state, you know, was it? Well, you know, California actually enabled slavery in many ways, including so if, 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 if a black person escaped uh, from slavery from an enslaved state and was in California, and California was asked to help round them up. No problem. Happy to do so. And of course, you have all the other broadly national policies that are racist that you know, continue to exist in California. So Japanese Americans were able to get reparations ultimately from internment. But you look at sort of racial, the wealth extraction that happened there, too. It's bad enough that folks had their freedom taken away. But, but folks also lost their land, their housing, their businesses, which is something I hadn't thought about until recently. Reading about a Japanese American guy, he's like, we we had the, the best restaurant in town. We'd done all this, and we had things that no other restaurants had. We worked really hard to create you know, this great restaurant, and the internment, it was gone. Somebody else was able to steal that land. So California it has gone the furthest in looking at reparations, but there are other communities looking at reparatory efforts, including places like Tulsa, you know, the Tulsa Wall Street Massacre. One of the goals of the handful of survivors of, the, of, that, of that massacre is to get reparations set up to of you know life well first life you know then land property you know all that you know that happened um, I, I think Tulsa's probably pretty well known now more so fortunately that uh, was the Watchmen TV show and I think it was on HBO 
with Regina King, start of this dramatic scene of these airplanes bombing a community. And The Watchmen is very much a fictional piece, you know, it's an alternative history, but that bombing, including planes firebombing a community really didn't happen in Tulsa. It really didn't happen because the instigating factor wasn't black wealth, but it was because there are these you know, these wealthy black folks living their best lives. You know, black, not just homeowners, you know, movie theater owners, you know, black schools, black um, pilots with their own planes. And then you had what was widely accepted to be a false accusation of like an, an accident where a young black man stumbled into a white woman in an elevator. She screams. And then you know, a lunch party goes out basically and the whole town is, is, is demolished. So, yeah. But so they're looking at rep- reparations. There's a, t- a, a Tallahassee, Oklahoma is one of the oldest of black communities that came up between the civil war and the depression and they were booming. And again, sort of state policies help limit that community's capacity to be successful, you know? And so they're now looking at a reparations effort to revitalize the town. And there's a whole group called mayors organized for reparations and equity. Now they're looking to repair the harm done by generations of racist policy. So that's one piece. And again, those are all great. I'm glad they're happening. But the scale of the problem requires a national response, right? But as we work towards that, I think that sort of like ambitious and difficult goal, there are little things that can be done. Like Derek Hamilton, who is a professor at the New School of New York and one of our board members at, at America's Financial Reform, has come up with the idea of baby bonds. So basically every you know, kid born in the U.S. gets $1,000 that is the but to accrue for college or post until, until that person is 18 and allowed to do whatever they want with that money. But because of the wealth gap, that you know, will disproportionately benefit uh, uh, folks of color. And so the disproportionate piece is one of the challenges with reparations because like, oh, that's, a, that's discrimination if you're only you know, giving this to black folks, not that, you know, there hasn't been literally, you know, centuries of discrimination uh, against black folks in this country. Right. But there's some places who they've looked at, let's revise our tax policies to make sure that they're equitable so that um, you don't have this imbalance where folks of color end up not being able to to, to benefit as much white folks as with these inadver- potentially inadvertent things like the way the, the, the marriage tax works, right? If you're one person making $100,000, you have the same tax rate as two people making $50,000 each. Which you know sounds like oh that's still you know that's legit and that's fair, but typically one person making hundred thousand dollars who has a stay at home partner has greater access than two people working fifty thousand dollar jobs and you know sort of struggling. So there are all kinds of tax structural changes we can make. And then broader changes that, that affect and benefit everyone, regardless of race, who's you know working class and low income. So capping a CEO pay, you know, yeah. executive compensation. Apparently, Netflix just decided today or yesterday that actually they didn't decide. The shareholders <laughs> said, you know what? Yeah. This two hundred six million dollar bonus package you're passing for three or four people, while all these writers are out on strike, maybe that's not a good look. Maybe that money can be reinvested to the writers who are doing the heavy lifting of the work yeah. and then there's t- and then there's also tiny things there's also a, a gap in who's banked and the, and the black communities especially but in other folks of color have less access to um, traditional banking uh, which means you know relies on less traditional banking and so there are efforts to reinstate postal banking which existed in this country until the early 50s where you can go into a post office and get not just a money order but just do your basic banking cash your checking and do it without sort of a minimal fee as opposed to these banks where their aim is to profit the post office is a public service right we, we all pay for the post office we should all be able to benefit from it and we should all have access to financial systems that aren't predatory and, and solely profit-based this is really good. It's like you said, it's a lot of things to think about when it comes to racial wealth gap, which I, I appreciate you giving that that feedback. 
I know that as part of your work on Take a Wall Street, you created a website titled Is Our Economy Fair, right? Because I guess when we think about the racial wealth gap, we have to think, or we should think about the systems that have created created that gap. I think a lot of times we yeah. try to address the racial wealth gap on the individual level. And, yes. it, and as much as I am a you know big proponent for financial education and financial literacy, yeah. you know, we can't have this conversation about it without addressing the larger systems that is our economy, that is our government and all these things that have been created. So I wanted to ask if you could tell our listeners a little bit about that website, what types of uh, tools and resources would they find? And, and what was the onus for creating uh, the site? Absolutely. Now, is our economy fair? dot org is a, is the name of the site, and I'm really, really proud of it. It's a, a pretty interactive site, and, and you know, I think it's also just really aesthetically engaging with data that's compelling that traces. The, the history of wealth extraction in the U.S. from colonization to the present day. So it leans more heavily on history, but you sort of starts off with the first, you know, colonists arriving in what became Virginia and their interaction with the Powhatan uh, tribe and sort of the decimation of that community. And the decimation of that community, which also meant the, the wealth creation for the, the elite there, because then suddenly they have land, right? And, and it goes all the way through. It, it mentions uh, some of the things um, that I've uh, said already today about looking at the New Deal and how that really created the white middle class. But um, didn't do uh, much to benefit black folks or other communities. And it gives a context. Really. It connects the, the, the prison industrial complex that we have today to that prison leasing system that, that emerged immediately after slavery. It looks at sharecropping, sort of debt peonage, where, okay, if you were lucky enough not to have been imprisoned, but sharecropping meant, you know, so you're working the farm for someone else's land and they set it up the same way that mining towns would do it. We're like, oh, well, thanks for all your payments, but you actually cost us this much. So your debt is, we're going to increase the amount we have to charge you for this. So they're always horrible contracts. They're not real contracts, right? So basically making it impossible for people to, to ever get ahead, you know, just keeping them in debt, you know, no matter how successful their, their crops have been, you know, so like, you know, buying them for lower rates, what have you. So um, that's what um, is our economy fair takes folks through. Yeah. And it came up from, as I mentioned, I'm a popular educator and was super excited about having this role of this organization and about six months into my position just as I was getting my feet under myself and ready to move forward March 2020 happened and we suddenly all went inside and popular education is really meant to be done in person but because of the degree of interactivity and engagement so I was trying to figure out a way, what do we do now? You know, how do we move this work forward without you know, being able to, to host meetings in person? And is our economy fair? It emerged from what used to be a single activity. It was the most visually engaging activity we have, which is called um, a gallery walk, which we, now we call it gallery viewing just to make it you know less ableist. But you'd have in an image and some text on a on a poster board on the wall and you sort of walk or, or move around you know 12 or 15 sheets to to absorb what was happening I said, okay, well, we're going to convert that activity to something that can be done online and it occurred to us that since it's going to be online it can serve the dual purpose. It can be used in a popular education context, which again is part of a collective, right? So folks engaging in learning, co-learning, co-teaching, but it also can just be straight political education because people don't have to do that in, in a context where like it's got twofold. So 
people you know who just want to you know learn a bit more about uh, about the evolution of wealth extraction in the U.S. about how gendered and raced these financial disparities have been can just you know, do that independently. But organizations they're saying, look, we want to figure out how to fight back against the corporate landlords that are buying up all the housing in our community, and so suddenly housing prices are going up, so people can't buy housing, which then pushes people into renting, so rents rents go up, and this is all sort of part of like private equity uh, organizations or companies primarily buying they did this right after 2000 there were i forget 200,000 blackstone by around 200,000 uh, housing units during the financial crisis cuz you know okay. housing was cheap and then yep. they you know, use that to become you know really bad landlords and charge people really high rates and so if people were saying like hey you know we want to fight you know we want to um, improve conditions in our apartment complex and they yep. immediately go to the complex with the manager and like oh actually that's not where the buck stops the buck stops actually this private equity company so we work with folks to help them sort of see the financial actors who might who might be accountable for some of the situations they're in. To my next question, just wanted to, as we kind of round out the conversation, how did you become passionate about financial reform, right? So yeah, I went from community organizing specifically and, and sort of starting to focus a little bit more into the world of financial reform through things of the website of Is the Economy Fair? Tell yeah. us a little bit about what that journey has been like for you. Sure. You know, the funny thing is, because I'm a generalist, I like a little bit about a lot of things. And then there are some areas that I feel like I know a fair amount about. And I thought like economic justice was one of those areas when I was up in philanthropy. That was the, the area that I did funding. And so I'm like, I get community land trusts and affordable housing efforts and like workers' rights and all this. And then I come to this organization and I learned about private equity and it just blew my mind and it continues to blow my mind. So I'll have to explain private equity here because i certainly didn't have a clear understanding of it when i joined the organization and i'm sure um, yeah the general american doesn't as well yeah and i'm happy to explain it but i also want to flag for folks because they say like wait that doesn't sound right maybe she misspoke no this is real and it's scary so private equity you know companies uh sort of come together uh and their aim is really short-term uh, profit. They want to get a return on their investment in, you know, in five to eight years sort of to close out that buyout. So I'm going to use one example that I think most folks you know, can relate to, explain how it works. So when Toys R Us went down, you know, I don't know, six, seven, eight years ago now, I think most of the narrative that I heard was like Amazon, right? It makes sense that online retailers, especially Amazon, you know, have cheaper prices. You know, brick and mortar stores can't compete as much. Not at all true. But then it was like, we need to figure out how to be more profitable. So we'll let private, you know, a private equity firm buy us. So Toys R Us at the time was worth $5 billion. This collection of private equity firms and a hedge fund, so two private equity companies and a very similar model hedge fund came together to buy Toys R Us. And what they did, so the private equity managers put down somewhere between 3 and 10% of, you know, of their own money to make a deal. The next chunk of money they get is from, honestly, potentially from some of us, because it's from pension plans, pension retirement accounts, uh, public investments, uh, university endowments. So organizations that have, that, who are trying to grow their investments. And so they get a big chunk from those institutions. But the bulk of it, they take out a $5 billion loan to cover the rest. And that loan doesn't go on the private equity firm's books. It goes on Toys R Us's books. So you take out a loan, but you don't have to pay for it. The company you just bought now is in dollars. And so the way the private equity makes their money, aside from the return of um, the investment, you know, making the, you know, their ownership piece, the other way is they have these you know, ridiculous fees. So they put the so five billion dollars is now added to Toys R Us's books, not to the private equity firm's books. 
And then the firm's like, oh, hey, it's fee time. I'm like, oh, looks like y'all can't afford it right now. Well, what you have to do is sell the land you own because most retail uh, co companies own their land. So Toys R Us sells this land to pay its fees to the private equity companies. In the meantime, that gives them more debt, right? So now Toys R Us is paying a lease on the land that they didn't have to do before because they own the land. And then comes another uh, round of fee payments due. I'm like, oh, you still don't, ah, things are a little tight. Well, it looks like you don't have to do some layoffs. And so like basically, so the private equity model is just to buy something, sort of, you sort of like strip it dry. You take all the equity and worth out of it, you know, milk it dry, use that equity to, you know, to, to their benefit. And when I say to their benefit, the other investors, the pension fund, plans and the university endowments, what have you, their return on investment has typically been inflated by the industry. In fact, they're not really getting a great return, but the big private equity firms, they're making out like gangbusters. So they're doing super well. In the meantime, Toys R Us, which I want to say was one of the biggest employees of women and of color in the U.S. until it collapsed. So during this whole you know, debacle, they're stripping away severance that people were owed. They're stripping away, you know, sort of like, it's just a horrible model. And it was illegal. as They're called leverage buyout back in the 80s and they were illegal until I want to say Reagan because how do you buy something and then you take on debt that you were not responsible for that you can make another entity responsible for and then you so, so all you're doing is reaping benefits so when I learned how private equity worked I was, I was really fired up about that and then I discovered oh so it's not just Toys R Us, it's Kmart, it's Cirque du Soleil, it's in housing, nursing homes now are becoming increasingly private equity owned, and you won't be surprised to hear that I their mortality that. rates, wow. yeah, and their mortality rates are skyrocketing at private equity uh, owned nursing homes. Emergency rooms are now being increasingly private equity owned, and we're actually working with um, Alliance, I forget the name, but Alliance of Emergency Room Doctors, who are like, hey... I can't do my work with these requirements they're putting on us. You know, if I've only got like six and a half minutes per uh, patient or, you know, that's, I mean, they're in emergency rooms and beyond. But in any case, doctors are, are, are getting really concerned. So if you hear that private equity has bought something you care about, yep. you should expect that, that thing will be gone soon. About a year ago, P and Van was bought by a private equity firm. And I forget what they stand for, but, but they, they do a lot of the back end organization fundraising for Democratic candidates. Mm hmm. So like being able to manage the, the, the pull the walk list, the voter list, to see the voting records, to look at neighborhood lists uh, by precinct to figure out how you go out to do targeting of the folks you want to turn out to vote and to get to support your candidate. It's been the primary uh, uh, supporter until about a year ago with Bob by Private Equity. And come 2024, it's going to really... It, it, I'm really hoping that, that, that people are, are, are already working right now to figure out you know, what to do as a backup because they've already been started laying off uh, huge swaths of their staff. So they're not going to be able to have the capacity that's had in prior years. And that's really going to hamper um, get the vote efforts by, again, this farm that was predominantly working for Democrats. So like PetSmart now owned by private equity. And so you had all these, all these incidents of, of different stores of pets dying because, again, the goal is to suck it dry. We'll suck up whatever you know, organization, whatever company dry to, to direct those profits to those who have invested the least financially, but who have the power because of the structure of the private equity model. So yeah, when I just started getting a sense of how it is, I mean, I don't know that I've encountered any sort of industry where private equity doesn't have a foothold and it's especially disturbing in cases with nursing homes and other sort of healthcare settings. I mean, it's disturbing anywhere, but the, the fact that people are literally dying because private yeah. equity owns them. So that, yeah, that got me really fired up. And now I'm just an anti-private equity evangelist. And that's not even the team I work on that we have a private equity team it's not even my work but you know yeah. um, it's so widespread and so nefarious and such an 
absurd model that it's like, wait, can I go buy your house now and then put that mortgage back on your books? And like, and I have to worry about it. I mean, I mean that's it's as ridiculous as that. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Erica, you've given us so much really good meaty information, I know, an amazing history too of, of, of a lot of these things. And so what do you want our listeners to take away from today's conversation? You know, I would encourage folks, I think one of the biggest things, especially about financial reform, is that these the terms that are used, the way things are explained are intentionally confusing, right? They're intimidating for a reason, because we're not supposed to know, we're not supposed to understand, because when we look under the rock and see what's going on, we're like, oh, hey, this is not all right. So we want to try not to be intimidated and to look for resources where you know, where people are breaking things down. So there's our organization, Take On Wall Street, it's at takeonwallstreet.org. Our mother organization, realbankreform.org, is the address for Americans for Financial Reform. We have a private equity uh, site as well uh, for our private equity campaign, and I want to say that, and that's the, the stopwallstreetlooting.org. And I think also I'd encourage people to take a moment and, sort of, and really dive into, into folks who are doing deep historical analyses of how we got here and what the background is. So I would highly recommend Black AF History by Michael Harriot. Michael Harriot is a really good writer, really great a historian of the hidden, and was the unofficial godfather of Black Twitter at one point. And so that's a book that just came out in October, and it really dives in. It's the unwhitewashed history of America, which you know gives a lot of context about how things came to be. And he also has a podcast called Drapetomaniacs, D-R-A-P-E-T-O-M-A-N-I-A-X. So Drapetomaniacs, based on Drapetomania, which was a disease that a doctor created during slavery to say like, oh, well, well, people are running away from this amazing enslavement. There must be something wrong with it. There must be a disease. I'm going to call it Drapetomania. So Drapetomaniacs, his new podcast. Okay. I encourage folks to look at isourecommonyfair.org, our our website. All right. And uh, yeah. Okay. Well, you've given us a lot of good links to review. And then if people want to learn a little bit more about popular education and, and, and what your organization is doing around there, any resources that you would suggest them review? Yeah, there's actually Forge Organizing is a, is a great website designed for organizers, but it has a lot of popular education materials on there, on, you know, on the site. The Center for Story-Based Strategy isn't really about popular education explicitly, but it also is very good about sort of shaping stories and helping folks understand. And so breaking down sort of things that are, that are intentionally complex so that uh, they can be more understandable. And then also I encourage folks to you know, follow you know, us on, on, you know, on X for the time being anyway, at Real Bank Reform and at Take On Wall ST for, for that. Okay. Cool. Thank you so much. And so what's next for you? Any, any upcoming projects or campaigns, things that you want to highlight? Oh, that's a good question. I feel like I'm, I've um, actually taken on a new role in my organization. So I'm doing part pop ed and part acting chief of staff. So what I'm doing right now, if anybody's going to be at the women's convention in Milwaukee this weekend, one of my colleagues and I will be there doing a workshop on reclaiming the economy from the wealthy elite. Okay. Although I imagine that's going to be too soon. I that's not taking two days. Probably uh, uh, that will have happened by the time this airs. But yeah, I think 
the, the big focus for me right now is knowing that nothing is going to change and move into the current Congress. <laughs> you know, certainly not even having you know, House leadership. Yeah. So I think it's really important for us as an organization to work with grassroots folks because I don't think this is sort of common knowledge. So for folks who are part of community organizations or labor organizations or any sort of you know, entity or church, you know, like we could really benefit to learn. We'd love, love to, to learn more. Or there's a particular issue that, we, that we're fighting or trying to figure out, and we'd love to see what the intersection is there. Folks should always feel free and absolutely feel free to reach out to me um you know by you know by um or by phone um all that information is on our website um okay. and my email i can just say is erica e-r-i-c-k-a uh-huh. at our financial security.org that will be different in a couple months we're actually revising our website and i think we're going to be changing the web address but you'll get redirected anyway yeah we'll get it out before then well thank you so much erica thank you for giving all your social links and how folks can contact you you gave us a lot of really great resources and mostly a really rich and robust conversation around the web gap i'm so excited to have had you on and look forward to continuing to following all the great work that you're doing. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity. It was great being in conversation with you and you have a great podcast. I'm looking forward to to continuing to follow it as well. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's all for today, folks. Enjoyed the show? Be sure to like and rate the podcast. You can find the Race, Wealth, and Health podcast on multiple platforms, including Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Be sure to subscribe and turn on your notifications so you never miss an episode. I also want to hear from you, so don't forget to connect with me on social media. You can follow the podcast on Instagram and Facebook at Race Wealth Health. By joining the online community, you'll stay updated on the latest episodes, behind-the-scenes insights, and engaging discussions. Share your thoughts, comments, and questions there. I appreciate your support in sharing the podcast with your friends, family, and colleagues who may also find value in these conversations. Thank you again for joining me on this journey. Until next time, take care, stay informed, and keep up the good fight for equality.